You're listening to CISD on SOAS Radio. Well, hello, uh, welcome. I'm uh, Dan Pesh, Centre Director. Thank you very much for coming along this lunchtime. Uh, War and Peace in the 21st Century is the topic for today. It'll be uh, in two parts. Um, the first, I'll um, talk about some broad themes and we can have a discussion, and that will elide into uh, uh, a discussion of our scrap weapons uh, project. Uh, as I said, I want to talk to you a little bit about my own research and policy interests in these sessions, and this one um, has the immodest title of War and Peace in the 21st Century. Um, personally, I think that the central issue, uh, and I'm not the first, by any means the first person to say it, the central issue facing humanity is the self-destructive potential of industrial civilization. Most of the attention in recent years has been on climate change and its potential to, for uh, self-destruction. Um, but uh, when I was young, uh, the focus was all about uh, nuclear war. And now you have uh, all sorts of people saying that the threat of nuclear war is again great. International relations as a discipline, as some of you will have found in that class, uh, begins after uh, what we tend to call the First World War, although from a lot of perspectives you might call it the Third World War, uh, given the wars of the 18th century were really quite global, the European wars were quite global. But anyway, IR starts uh, around 1919, and well, Marxists would say it was kind of founded to prevent war that would threaten uh, the control of imperial and capitalist elites, given the collapse of some half a dozen empires in 1919. More generally, though, uh, one could see the discipline has been founded on with the idea that uh, the world war was, had just become too destructive, far more destructive than people had anticipated, or most people had anticipated in 1913-14, uh, and that by 1919 it was thought that academia needed to do something about it. I would say it is noteworthy how little attention there is to world war in international relations today. A number of ideas come up within the theme of uh, war and peace in this century. One which I've wrestled with from uh, almost from a teenager is uh, this idea that we're experiencing a long peace, that since 1945, the world has not experienced world war, therefore nuclear weapons must keep the peace. This doesn't mean that more and more countries should have nuclear weapons, that is a, another topic, uh, but certainly within the major powers, that is uh, an assumption. However, um, going to uh, the title of the talk, of course, Tolstoy's War and Peace is written in the middle of what is called the, Napole <coughs> the Napoleonic Wars at the beginning of the 19th century. And from the Congress of Vienna in 1814-15 to the outbreak of what we call World War I in 1914, there is no general European war. Europeans are busily massacring and colonizing large parts of the planet in this era. But within Europe, there are short, sharp, sporadic wars involving a couple of countries. Uh, there is no general European war. And this actually is the first time there hasn't been any major European war for any significant period of time, really since the fall of the Roman Empire. You go back into medieval uh, times, the general pattern uh, of interstate relations from the late medieval period all the way through is a state of more or less continual war between empires with short periods of peace. So the long peace really is 1814 to 1914. Now, I would suggest that is a fairly objective set of facts, but it makes not the slightest difference to the purveyors of the long peace theory, which raises other questions, I think, about how far empiricism, how far facts on the table 
actually interfere with what we all want to believe. Because, of course, we all want to believe that we will remain at peace. So there's a natural human, human instinct to hang on to any piece of evidence. And compared to World War I turning into World War II, 40, 50, now 70 years of peace within, between the major powers is something to hang on to. Uh, but sadly, the 1815, 19, well, 1814, 1914 century doesn't bode well. And certainly the war of 1914 didn't look at all like the war of 1815. And I think we can be pretty clear that the war of any war of the late, late or middle 21st century isn't going to too, look too much like the war of 1939-45. Uh, I spent quite a lot of time, we'll come to it later, looking at controls on major conventional weapons, which don't exist uh, at the moment at all. Uh, that is warplanes, tanks, artillery guns and the like. Uh, and one small anorak fact is that none of the guns used by any of the militaries in World War II would be regarded as large enough to count as a heavy conventional weapon today. Uh, which gives you some idea of the order of magnitude shift that has taken place in the last 50, 60 years, even within uh, conventional weapons. The prospect of impending war, as I say, isn't one that troubles IR theory too much, but kind of it should, I would have thought. Realism, in general, would predict that uh, competing states uh, end up in conflict, either economic conflict or more likely military conflict. Um, and I don't know if anybody had a chance to look at the the review article of books on U.S.-China relations. There's one, Thucydides' trap, devoted to this question. And I heard Henry Kissinger lecturing here not so long ago uh, about one of his own books, saying that business as usual will produce a U.S.-China war. Well, that's kind of cheerful. <laughs> Now, what other theories might help? Well, we might look at uh, constructivism, for example, or liberal internationalism. Well, liberal internationalism, possibly, but as uh, the conservative American Senator McCain observed recently that the Trump administra administration, he might have just said this out of peak with Trump because previous American and other governments, particularly uh, in Moscow and Beijing, uh, haven't been doing too well in upholding the international order, but McCain said that we are at risk of throwing the whole of the post-World War II international order away. Uh, well, that's liberal internationalism for you. <laughs> uh, maybe it needs a revival. But anyway, uh, perhaps uh, you know, McCain, if McCain is even half right, we can't uh, rely too much on that. Constructivism. Well, historians are a little rude about IR theory, and I think sometimes they say, Constructivism is what uh, IR came up with when they realised they needed to get out more. Uh, so you have a you know a ser series of perspectives: ethnographic, uh, uh, psychological, uh, all sorts of uh, theoretical approaches can be brought into into the uh, constructivist um, title. There's a very good article which I'll send around uh, by a French colleague, uh, which I think was quoted in the. And if you saw the Financial Times piece um, that we sent around, where he talks about the denial of luck, uh, denial being a, psych a psychoanalytic theory of putting away uncomfortable facts, like, well, actually, the 19th century was a century of peace, uncomfortable fact. Other uncomfortable fact that deterrence, that concept, nuclear deterrence, which people hang on to, clutch like a child playing at a blanket, you might say, <laughs> as keeping the peace, that there are a, a series of uncomfortable incidents that we know about, some in the 1980s and 90s, some going back to the 1960s, when procedures were put in place to start nuclear war. And the only reason that the nuclear war didn't take place was because either senior officials or junior officials disobeyed orders to 
escalate nuclear crisis, to fire their nuclear weapons, or to uh, persuade or stop uh, their commanders from firing nuclear weapons. Uh, so rather than talking about accidents, I would say, well, deterrence has demonstrably failed repeatedly. Not a pretty comfortable concept. Uh, it has failed repeatedly, uh, so it is not reasonable to expect that it is, is going to, to continue without or a continued reliance upon good fortune or luck, as Benoit uh, put it so succinctly. And he, with uh, marvelous uh, French academic precision, just uh, slices up all the ways in which uh, uh, people in their arguments deny the influence of, of luck in, in nuclear systems. An incident I came across only uh, relatively recently, only came out relatively recently, was in the um, much-discussed Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s, when an order came through to uh, 36 one-megaton U.S. nuclear missiles in the Japanese island of Okinawa that they fired, and the commander went, well, most of these targets aren't even in Russia. Um, uh, so I think we'll hold on a minute. Uh, and in fact, he's had to send to uh, uh, airmen with 45 pistols um, into the missile launch center and hold the missile, missileers, as they're called in the jargon, up at gunpoint until 10 minutes later somebody came through like in the movies with a bit of paper saying oh it's a mistake <laughs> uh, and there are a host of other such incidents and one can say you know logically do we know about all the incidents or maybe there are some others <laughs> and if you read the autobiography of a former secretary of defense for William Perry uh, for Bill Clinton William Perry uh, he describes how even under Clinton, he was woken up in the middle of the night uh, and told that uh, the radars said that the Russians were attacking with nuclear weapons. And he um, said, don't be silly, go back to bed. He brought in some, this goes to a point, further constructivist point about generations and um, experience. He, early in life, had also been involved in Cuba. He had been in a, a professional... American intelligence analyst of aerial photographs. And if you ever come across the Cuban Missile Crisis, a lot of it relied upon what American spy planes were photographing in Cuba and how they were being interpreted. Well, I guess probably not much older than any of you, he was sitting in the Pentagon analyzing these photographs, knowing that the reports he sent out the line would determine whether or not there was going to be nuclear war or not. That gives a level of 30 years of hinterland of experience to bring to bear in when he gets the call in the middle of the night. One of the systemic problems one has culturally is that now you have people with less and less experience. For my sins, I was born in 1955. My parents were combat veterans and refugees of the Second World War in various, that was their generation. So in a sense, come from that generation, I'm the last of that lot, <laughs> in a way, uh, of, of that cultural memory. And so you have people more and more coming into positions of authority and control with almost no real-world experience, which is a further constructivist cultural reason for concern about systems. Which brings us to the cheerful uh, Whoops Apocalypse. It was a TV series back in our youth when we were all worried about Ronald Reagan. Hey, he was great compared to what we got now. <laughs> he may have been a movie actor, but he'd run California, and maybe his brain was going, but he was much, much more engaged than what we have now. So these are real underlying reasons for concern. Time is not on our side. Uh, the cultural uh, structures are declining in terms of experience. Uh, the ability of systems and publics and elites to rationally organize, rationally analyze issues. Uh, I mean, I, when I got rung up by the Financial Times for this piece, you know, they say, what's changed? I said, well, nothing's really changed. It's always been extremely dangerous, except that about every few years, you guys get into a panic and give us a call. 
you know. And so they wanted to write, oh, we've got, we've got limited nuclear war, we've got tactical nuclear weapons. Well, again, in the good old days, when I was little, I had one of these uh, military toys, I remember it well. Um, it was a battlefield nuclear weapon, not that I knew that at the time. And the United States Army actually developed nuclear weapons to be fired from rocket-propelled grenades on the backs of jeeps. So the idea that we are getting into some new era of nuclear weapons for warfighting is bunkum. This is always back to Hiroshima. It's always been about fighting wars. And if deterrence meant anything, it meant a balance in warfighting. Now, it was quite easy yesterday evening to write down, oh, Iran, DPRK, China, Russia, Trump's triumph. <laughs> well, trying to get through that lot in a few minutes is, uh, will, be, will be a challenge. Every time I pick up the specialist literature coming off the, uh, the interweb, we find that Trump wants to pull out of the Iran deal. The Iranians are threatening all sorts of things if that happen. At the same time, we have the situation <laughs> with North Korea. We have China and going back to realism and Kissinger and Thucydides' tra challenge or um, trap. Uh, the one rising power that could challenge America. Now, if you're playing a board game of realism, the smart thing to do is for the Americans to attack China, isn't it? Wipe them off the map before they get a chance to get at you. Now, a bit of a PR problem with that nowadays. I'll, and I'll come back to what that PR problem might be. There might be something that we can hang on to there. We hear through Western media a drumbeat about Russian threats, Russian forces, Chinese forces, and so forth. Now, you'll also, being intelligent uh, um, CISD students, know that the United States accounts for more than 50% of the world's military expenditure. You also know that America's allies, plus or minus, make up another 75% of world's military expenditure. So the US and its allies outspend everybody else, the Chinese and Russians included, by an order of magnitude. And yet, of course, in our media world, what we hear about is the uh, Russia-China threat. What we don't hear about are the... Um, American military forces. There is a, a saying of the elder Roosevelt, talk softly and carry a big stick, which in 1900 meant a shotgun. And I would put it to you, if there's a takeaway from this uh, session, this is probably it, uh, that the United States is extremely skillful at downplaying its overwhelming nuclear and particularly conventional military forces. On Korea, there is a wonderful organization called Nautilus. I don't know why it's called Nautilus. Um, there was a Jules Verne mad sea captain of that name, uh, his ship, uh, Captain Nemo, who sailed around in one. Anyway, Nautilus Institute have, uh, uh, I think, some of the best analysis on Korea. Buried away, I was discussing this with one of the, their, their chief, Peter Hayes, um, in the military options, he talked about, he had this phrase he used, see if I can get it right, uh, that whatever began at the beginning of the conflict, you would then see from the United States and its allies, what was his phrase, a tsunami of precision-guided molten steel, that the overwhelming strength <laughs> of American conventional capability would mean that whatever these North Koreans might be able to do in the short term <coughs> to anybody, uh, and I will just give a, a couple of um, examples of this, and one can get into this military technology to a much greater degree uh, than anybody sane would want to. But broadly speaking, the Boeing aircraft company is proud to say on the internet, uh, there's something called the small diameter bomb, if you've got your devices available, that this bomb that they started to deploy around about 2008 quadruples the firepower of the US Air Force. So you may kind of vaguely recall that there was a certain unpleasantness with Saddam Hussein a bit over a decade ago. Um, well, in that war, uh, the analysts tell us 
that the United States Air Force attacked in two hours as many targets has been has were attacked a decade earlier in the war over Kuwait. So you're seeing this money being devoted to continually upgrade and exponentially increase the power of the US military. While we hear about North Korea having this rocket and the um, Iranians having this capability, uh, the overwhelming firepower is ever, ever increasing levels of US <coughs> conventional forces. Of course, this doesn't too work too well in guerrilla force operations in Iraq or Afghanistan, um, where this huge amount of firepower isn't in the modern day particularly helpful. But broadly speaking, the American bomber fleet could attack some 30,000 pinpoint targets covered in concrete in two minutes. 30,000 targets in two minutes is quite a lot, if you think about it. You know, how many guns have the Koreans got? And there is a, a let us say, an old um, 19th century European colonial analogy, which I think there was a, uh, an English uh, poet who had a couplet about the colonial wars of the 19th century, that when all is said and done, we are the ones with the machine gun. And that whatever you can make up stories of uh, in those 19th century colonial days of uh, evil and savage tribes, people waving spears and shields, that Western industrial firepower produced colonial domination. And that same potential exists today and from the United States perspective has barely been used. So I for one wouldn't be well I wouldn't say not surprised but one has to put into the consideration that when we look at impending <coughs> potential conflicts with Iran or North Korea and when we are told how incredibly powerful these countries are. I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember when we were all told that Saddam Hussein had the world's third largest army. It lasted 72 hours. So all I really, not, I'm not saying that Trump is about to attack tomorrow. I'm not saying it would be a good result in any sense of good. What I am saying is that almost everything that we are told hugely underestimates uh, the power of the American military. Now, you have to say afterwards, well, what happens afterwards? Well, uh, one has to begin to look at, I would say, domestic politics from a constructivist perspective. There were those of us arguing against the Iraq invasion who had to tackle the people like uh, our own dear uh, Claire Short, who thought, oh, well, we'll be involved in reconstruction of Iraq, so it'll be okay, you know, we'll bring liberal democracy afterwards. The reality is that the regime of Bush in 2003 and Trump far more, they don't believe in government as SOAS understands it. Yes, that basically doesn't think that the, the government has, should have a role in education, health, or anything else that the UN or SOAS believes in. That They think the government should be there to shoot foreigners and hang the guilty preferably if they're black. I'm not joking. There is a serious racial issue here. If you look at the domestic policies of the Trump administration, don't expect them to behave any differently internationally, which goes to a significant part of what I'll be talking about tomorrow night, about connections between domestic policy uh, and ideology and international policy. So in this respect, you can see that Trump and some of the people around him are tempted to, to go for broke. Now is the time to restore the 21st century as an American century. And if they don't deal with North Korea and Iran now, then they certainly won't be able to deal with, uh, with China. And if they can't deal with China, then where does this leave the American empire uh, and American predominance? It's easy to forget that... <coughs> still 90% of or 95% of the world's nuclear weapons are controlled 
and owned by the United States and Russia. They're in the thousands, but many of these systems are run by people who probably wouldn't pass a, you know, a drug test or a, a psychological evaluation nowadays. You look around and you'll find that senior officials in the American command were sacked for gambling, drug offenses, and other issues quite recently. There's a great book by Eric Schlosser, Command and Control. It's a very good summary of all things you should be scared about. Um, chemical weapons, one might say, is a bright point on the horizon. Yes, parties in the Syrian conflict have used and perhaps continue to use small quantities of chemical weapons, but a thousand plus tons of Assad's chemical arsenal were taken out of the country and destroyed because of a forgotten Cold War, end of the Cold War agreement that outlawed chemical weapons and resulted in almost all countries getting rid of their chemical weapons. And chemical weapons being a rather more complicated issue to deal with in some ways than nuclear, this is a good thing, a good sign. For the future, that, you know, there are issues, we talk about cyber, nanotechnology, war in space, I'm not going to get into it all now, but it begs a question how, as you look to, you know, hopefully you'll all be alive, um, you know, around about 2100, all things being equal, uh, with current life expectations, are, we, are you, are we really going to see that sunlit future of your great-grandchildren as you reach that ripe old age with all of these systems and, and tensions or not? Which brings us to the what I call Einstein realism and what we can do about it. I want to move on to the second part. I sent around what I thought was this morning, what I thought was quite an interesting article Back in the 1920s, part of the, you know, the revulsion and self-destruction of World War One, there was an international treaty um, outlawing war. Only this October, I think, does aggressive war get to be an international crime at the ICC, and then only amongst states that have signed the ICC, according to that version of international criminal law. And the article suggests that this prohibition on war and what was called the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact has been actually quite effective. And the, the, the number of armed conflicts, the number of invasions have been really limited since the 1920s. And that compared to all previous eras of human history, conquest has more or less come to a halt. We can argue up and down about Palestine, we can find other instances, but broadly speaking, the idea that a state could just go and conquer another state and absorb it has gone into a rapid decline over the last century, says this, uh, makes this argument. I think that may be true, and I think it points to a non-acknowledged but hopefully encouraging factor in international affairs. The fact that publics, and to a degree, quite a lot of elites do understand that major war is too self-destructive, that in the uh, concluding phrase of uh, a famous 1980s movie, War Games, that the only way to win is not to play. And that the way international society, that the creation of the League of Nations and the UN and the development of the international system since the fact that the Americans and the Russians had various agreements that did work on controlling weapons. All of these point to a public and an elite realization that major war is not to be contemplated. It often comes down in the word deterrence. There is a, I call it Einstein realism, naming a theory after its most famous original proponent, because Einstein famously said that the bomb has changed everything except the way we think. And there's a famous IR theoretician, Hans Morgenthau, who wrote much the same. Generally speaking, Hans Morgenthau is taught, according to his famous work about uh, politics and power from the 1950s, uh, which is fine, but by his later work in the late, late 1960s, he was saying that indeed the bomb has changed everything, that we can't try to absorb nuclear weapons into 
conventional forces or normal politics, and that normal politics has to change to deal with the existential threat of nuclear weapons, which is the argument of our friends at the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. A group of idealists. Well, I think they, I, we would argue, no, actually, we're the real realists. That uh, the idea that you can have all of these weapons indefinitely without there being a conflagration, that's the idealism. Because the IR and realism would tell you that, well, you can continue to have gruesome, bloody, and horrible small wars, such as we see in the Middle East at the moment, that at some point these are going to turn into really major wars, at which point it becomes too self-destructive to contemplate, and therefore there needs to be a major geopolitical effort to uh, reverse these trends. And as I'll be arguing in the UN course in a couple of weeks' time, this is why the major powers, the major victors of World War II, did not go, oh, the League failed, we had to fight Hitler, let's forget all this international organization stuff, that didn't work, that there's a consensus that, oh, that didn't work, you better try again, you better do it better. And one of our, my doctoral students is looking at the British official and political thinking in the mid-1940s. And what's interesting is he can't find anybody, not as it were the, even the William Reese Moggs of their day, you know, the British political scene, not even the far right of the Conservative Party were arguing against the United Nations at that point. There was a consensus that the previous system of international security may have failed, but we've got to do better. And I think that's a very powerful lesson it speaks to Senator McCain's uh, argument about the international system that we have to try and do better, and arguably we did one way or another. In the early 1980s, we now know that there was one of these moments of luck when, did anybody uh, see a, sli a very small cult TV series called Cult Deutschland 83? <laughs> Broadly speaking, the Russians were so paranoid that they thought that a NATO exercise was actual nuclear war and started nuclear war. You know, they, the word went up the line, nuclear war started, and one of the American generals in charge of the exercise went, hmm, maybe they think we're doing this for real. I know in the exercise it says I should ex-escalate, but you know what, I'm gonna de-escalate. And he stood his forces down the Russians noticed they stood theirs down. But his rule book and his generals had told him to carry on ratcheting. And one of the interesting side bars to this is that at the time, none of the senior political figures, Reagan, Thatcher and the like, had any idea he'd done it. But if he hadn't, they sure would have. Which goes to, as it were, the fact that the peace movements were right. There were millions of people on the street saying the world's about to go up, blow up. We didn't know for sure, but actually we were more right than we thought. And what's interesting, again, is that you don't find analysis of popular movements having any role in, a, in scholarship. They're generally speaking, social movements are seen as you know, crowds on the side without any real understanding or say in national state power. But my experience is really quite the opposite. <laughs> and similarly, it's that sort of pressure that, and that sort of public fuss that produces pressure on officials to behave differently within a cultural, again going back to constructivism, within a cultural milieu where without that it's hard to see where the political will comes from for a different course of action. So that I suppose is the what, first encouraging sign which is to say I think it isn't just luck it's also the fact that there is uh, an un some level understanding that preferring, just just preparing for war gives you war. But the elite senate at a public level, now, as I say, I think this has been very quiet for a long time, and perhaps if I'd given this talk with this title a couple of years ago, there would only have been three people in the room. <laughs> now we're a bit more worried. You're right to be, <laughs> but don't despair. Which brings us a little into ICANN, the Nobel, and our project. The International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons is an interesting 
sociological political phenomenon. As there's a in our website, we have an interview with a really experienced and very dedicated campaigner who says it all really started because the Norwegians had a left-wing government who wanted to fund disarmament, but all the money was in the development ministry. So they had to come up with an idea that they could sell to the development ministry. So they thought, oh, if you call it humanitarian, then the development ministry will fund our project. So that's how the Norwegians got the money. And then suddenly, lots of very small NGOs started getting shed loads of money from Oslo and began a campaign. And there were those, I think, those of us thought, well, it's, you know, it's great, but hasn't really got much, you know, detail. And by the way, they say that everybody before was just kind of nerdy arms controllers, and we were all campaigning for survival, actually, back in the day. But never mind, let me get on with it and join in as best we could and help. And most, you know, serious senior people were dismissive. We had uh, Scott Sagan and senior Cambridge official uh, professors here. Uh, last term, who basically said it was a very bad idea and we shouldn't do anything until Washington and Moscow were ready. There shouldn't be any public pressure. But nevertheless, a lot of states, perhaps infused by the international situation, pushed forward and pushed to get an agreement in the UN. In the meantime, the Norwegians had elected a conservative government. So all the money dried up. Uh, for the NGOs from states. Uh, uh, the Austrians stepped in and with uh, the Cubans and a bunch of other states pushed it through the UN. And what is this? As the cynics would say, it doesn't scrap a single nuclear weapon. But it's all about norm building, they would say. How far this will be a norm that's effective, becomes more effective, I don't know. What I would say is that it creates more fuss more attention, which has to be a good thing. Broadly speaking, there's absolutely nothing on the table in any international fora about controls over tanks, guns, warships and aircraft. Uh, nothing to do with what in the jargon are called conventional weapons. I think Winston Churchill rightly said when he saw the first American paper talking about nuclear war and conventional weapons, somewhat appalled that suddenly all the weapons of World War II were just dismissed as conventional weapons. Uh, but there we are. Um, and what this project seeks to do is to start restart the discussion on the controls on conventional weapons and look at new and more effective ways of controlling weapons of mass destruction, by which we mean nuclear, chemical, bio, any other new stuff, and missiles. And I think for most people, it is all unbelievably complicated. But from a technical perspective, controlling this stuff is an awful lot easier than controlling carbon emissions and climate change. For the latter, you have to basically reconfigure the whole of industrial society. For world disarmament, and that's what we're talking about, you've really got to count up and control maybe 100,000 bits of kit. When it comes to nuclear weapons, an awful lot less. So as a technical proposition, and this is where uh, officials from nuclear weapon states start to get ever so slightly, I wouldn't exaggerate it, ever so slightly concerned, is that actually, technically, it's feasible. And what we've done in the Scrap Project with successions of students, I read a book chapter about this more than a decade ago, and then some of your predecessors came into my office and said, why aren't you doing something about this? It's quite an interesting idea. And I said, well, I have a department to run. Uh, and so they started doing work on it. And I got a very nice email from one of the um, alumni who had built our website a few years ago. And what we started to do was to take the ideas to the UN. Now, you know you have a... Uh, a visit to the UN, uh, most of you, almost all of you, in February. One of the things we do is to present the Scrap Project, the top brass of the UN, who are desperate for anything to happen on, on disarmament. The top brass, the, the head of the UN, traditionally comes and presents. And you'll see uh, Anna Fuhr, one of your predecessors on the panel, with several eminent ambassadors. 
presenting the project, that could be you. And we looked at agreements that were made at the time of the Cold War that controlled large amounts of the world's weapons. Uh, these are kind of fun because they, these agreements actually resulted in aircraft being chopped up under the treaty. The treaty text is quite fun. It says, you know, the aircraft should be sawn in half and such like things. It's quite entertaining. But anyway, these are, you'll see it on the slider, these are aerial photographs of fleets of bomber aircraft that were sliced up according to American Soviet treaties. And what we've done in the project is to start to put these technical agreements together and say, this is how you could do it. And my motivation for that is twofold. Firstly, I have to say, I get extraordinarily tired of being patronized by officials and diplomats who say, oh, disarmament's all very nice, you know. We like your idealism and your morality, but, you know, it's not practical. Not practical. I say, well, actually, there we go. How practical do you want? <laughs> it's practical. And also then to be able to put that as a set of tools into your hands and say, actually, this is not pie in the sky. This could be practical. We could make this happen if you wanted to. It is symbolism of climate change. This is how we can move it forward. And this is where, as a, as a group of students and academics, um, we take our um, ideas into the public policy realm. And if you're interested in, in, in engaging in international public policy, it's quite an interesting thing to be engaged in as an exercise, even if you don't care about the topic, because it does get us involved with, you know, one of, let us say, one of the more difficult problems on the international agenda, an opportunity to engage uh, with actual diplomats, actual officials, deal with their responses. And two more points, and I'll, and I'll, I'll hand over and we'll talk with, with Alex and others. Uh, one of the things that we discovered in the course of this work was that from the 1950s through till about 1990, everybody, and to be cynical, the list of hypocrisy, oh, we'd love to have disarmament, included world disarmament in the jargon general disarmament. And then for the last 10 or 15 years, it just fell off the list, of, as it were, of, of diplomatic prayers that were made. And so what we've had to do in the first instance is to get it back onto the list of topics. And we did this in discussions around the ICANN Nuclear Ban Treaty and worked with a group of about 20 states who came forward and put just the general objective of global disarmament back in, into the treaty. I think it's Article 9, I forget. Uh, and now we're engaged in a process to get more political support at the UN. We've been working with a global network of parliaments for them to start that discussion and to feed into that ideas from a number of the former officials. I think we now have four former heads of disarmament for the UN on our advisory board and a bunch of weapons inspectors and NGOs and usual suspects but quite an illustrious uh, uh, board that we have engaged now in this project. And what we want to do is to take this research and advocacy up to another level over the course of the next year. And if you're interested, encourage you to engage with your governments by email, encourage you to use social media, and in the uh, aftermath of the ban treaty, to start to increase the, the attention to these issues. Um, because the clock is ticking and the room is hot, um, what I might suggest is that people should hang on if they'd like to be involved in Scrap. Um, we'll probably send things around in general through Facebook and elsewhere. Um, but if those people want to take off, then we'll hang on and have a chat with Kevin and um, Alex and others about what we're doing in the project. Thank you. Hey guys. Um, well, thank you for staying here. Um, I'll talk briefly because uh, we have only 15 minutes and I'm aware that uh, some of you might have classes, uh, so I'll be very brief. Um, I'll talk about the scrap project sorry, um, and more precisely um, what, what we do. So there are three main uh, projects within or step projects within the, the, um, the scrap project. So one area of operation is with the UN. 
One is with the parliamentarians and the Interparliamentary Union. For those of you who don't know what the Interparliamentary Union is, it's uh, more or less like the UN. So it has the General Assembly and uh, every parliament in the world sends a delegation of parliamentarians and they just debate um, very much uh, like the UN. So UN Interparliamentary Union and then there is also an emerging project now within um, an office of, of the UN, which is the uh, UN Office for Disarmament, uh, for Peace and Disarmament in Africa. Um, so these are the three, main UN, New York, Geneva, uh, UN Africa, and uh, the Parliamentarian. So UN in New York, what we what we doing is, as Dan uh, probably said, trying to reintroduce that concept of uh, general and com complete disarmament into the UN system. So just that we're all on the same page, general and complete disarmament doesn't mean getting rid of all the weapons. That's not what we're advocating here. It's just, it means um, eliminating WMD, uh, weapons of mass destruction, and controlling conventional weapons, or reducing as well, but controlling mainly. So um, it's not getting rid of everything. And so we're, what we've done is that we've managed to get a joint publication with the UN Office of Disarmament Affairs on, on this topic. So it's the very first report that has ever, ever been produced by the UN on general and complete disarmament. And we managed to do this. Uh, we, uh, it, was, uh, it was released uh, last year. And so this report was very well received by uh, some member states. So it was very well received by member states, uh, some member states. And um, so those interested member states, they um, decided that uh, it was worth uh, forming a sort of a group of like-minded states so that they could discuss you know, the ideas that were expressed in that report and see how you can actually introduce them into the different UN fora um, that discuss disarmament issues and see how you can implement them and operationalize them, uh, basically. So given that the, um, the report was uh, released yeah, a year ago, uh, we're just in that process of forming that group of states and then talking with them. We've managed to you know, co-write joint statements that um, this, this group of states has uh, delivered uh, during official negotiations at the UN. Um, so we're working with them and uh, implementing this idea of general complete disarmament. So with the Interparliamentary Union, it's pretty much the same. Uh, what we're doing is a bit more specific to parliament, parliamentary oversight. So it's basically we're giving the parliamentarians the tools to keep their government accountable with regards to the disarmament obligations that they have under certain treaties. So because parliamentarians uh, deal with a lot of issues from healthcare to disarmament, they, they're not necessarily aware of um, you know, all the, uh, what's happening in the disarmament field. So what we're doing is that we're working with them, raise their awareness of what are the issues uh, in the disarmament field and, um, and what are the tools at their disposal uh, for them to, uh, as I said, exercise oversight over the the government's policy on disarmament and keep them accountable and make sure that they can engage with the government and that they can give inputs to the government as um, to how to design and implement certain disarmament policies. And then the last one with the UN office in Africa, that's something that is really being developed right now. Uh, so it's, it's the very early stages. It's about uh, working with the civil society. It's this is really civil society groups in Western Africa and uh, mainly Togo, actually, uh, because that's where the office is, that's where the base, where, that's where the UN is. Uh, so it's easier to work there first. And we're trying to, again, as, as, as a work of um, raising, raising awareness and uh, giving, uh, working with a civil society there and see how civil society can be included um, into um, disarmament policies in, in Western Africa because apparently the civil society is not really part of, of, of the disarmament framework in Western Africa and they, so the government, if you wish, they then lack a sort of an external party with 
neutral uh, expertise that can well they can help or support the, the the government in implementing development so that's what we're trying to do build capacity with those um, civil society actors in western africa so these are the three things now how you can contribute very quickly three ways first is doing research second is um, helping with events when we organize events either here in london or elsewhere and the third one is social media. So the three, um, you can do more than one. But there is one thing I should say is that this is extracurricular. So courses first, and then don't worry if you you didn't get all of the acronyms uh, Dan said during his or mentioned during his speech and all the details, conventional, <coughs> nuclear, and blah 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 blah. You don't need to be necessarily an expert on disarmament to work on scrap because. There's a lot of stuff to do, so I'm sure you're going to find yourself things to do. And um, last thing is that we very much encourage people to be as proactive as possible uh, with this project. So we've basic, basically given you a, pl a platform that you can use if you're interested in disarmament. You can use that and make it kind of your own. What we're not going to do with Dan is give, giving you homework and say, or you should read this, or you should do that, or you should write a, a research paper on this or on that. That's not really going to happen. We really want to encourage you to uh, take initiatives um, and ownership in that project. We understand that at, at first, you know, you, you, you need to obviously read about the project and uh, get yourself a bit more familiar with the disarmament world. So we're going to help you do that. But after that stage, it's going to be very much like, okay, what do you want to do? And then you'll have to be proactive um, there. So that's one thing. And so, yeah, with that, I think I'm, I'm finished there. And you still have seven minutes. <laughs> well, you didn't mention what is currently going on at the UN. So you're joking. Uh, so I want to idle to that. Uh, the deadline, I think, is October 12th. Is it? Yeah. So currently at the UN in New York, there is a coalition of co or covert agents or whatever who are having quiet discussions with different uh, members of the UN in order to get the issue of general and complete disarmament on the agenda for the year so that it comes up in the General Assembly uh, this year. Uh, the deadline for that is October 12th, and today is the 10th. I think we are running on the assumption it's going to happen, though. So what, we what I created yesterday uh, with Kevin writing it mostly is a template letter that we posted on the blog and you can all take it and copy it and you know translate it if you wish and whatever and send it to kind of your local uh, UN representative trying to encourage them to you know get on board on the issue show that there's actually public support for the issue um, we could definitely also use Twitter and yeah that's that's kind of uh, the current initiative that we're going to be focusing on this week and the next couple weeks yeah.